Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Valley Girl is over. Bitchin'. Is it in 3D? Besides, it's totally gnarly birth control. <laughs> I can't stand it. Okay, so he's awesome. <laughs> Valley Girl. She's out there somewhere. This is the story of a boy from Hollywood who never dreamed the girl he'd want most was down here. I'll stop the world. Hello. Hello. Who invited you? Oh, wow, you mean you have to be invited? That explains it. What? Well, everyone is dressed See, if I had been invited, I would have known this was a costume party. Right. <laughs> it's the story of a girl from the valley who never dreamed she'd ever be seen with a boy from over here. It's like I'm not getting out of this car. All right, but when they attack the car, save the radio. So when can I see you again? I'm here with you now. I know. This is the story of Randy and Julie, the way they come together, and the people who try to pull them apart. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? This geek that she's with could scar her for life. Uh, did you find that you started speaking like a valley girl for some period after you watched this movie? Val speak? Val speak. Totally. Bitchin. Like, for sure. Gnarly podcast, dude. <laughs> Gnarly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to stop that. I Because I totally did, and I'm not good at it, and it's not natural. But I did it anyway, because that's who I am. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Valley Girl 1983, part of our 80s comedy with Coolidge and Heckerling. Or Coolidge, Heckerling, and Comedy and Associates. Yes, cute. Uh, yep. And uh, that's the movie we're doing. And this was really fascinating to explore this film. Why, again, are we doing this? What did we, what were we decide? What, what cockamamie scheme have we cooked up? <laughs> well, I, I think the idea was uh, what Amy, uh, Amy Heckerling and Martha Coolidge had been delivering in the 80s as kind of comedy and some of it how it has defined uh, comedy in some ways and defined the time, I think, really, is more the term. Certainly with these first two films in the series, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Valley Girl, it, they really kind of became 
cultural touchstones. And I, I think it speaks a lot to, uh, you know, kind of the direction that they both kind of took in their careers with the comedies that they were making and everything. And so I think that is why we're here. And it's interesting because for some reason in my head, I always assumed that this and Frank Zappa's or really Frank and Moon Zappa's song mm-hmm. were connected. And like, I, <laughs> I, it's funny. I watched this film having thought that I had seen this and I, I realized when I finished, I'm like, Oh, I guess I never had seen it. Where was the song? And I kept thinking that little did I realize that there was actually some conflict between the Zappas and the filmmakers, which I didn't know at the time, which probably speaks to why it wasn't here. But certainly, I mean, it was a song that the Zappas had put together in 82 as a kind of a parody of this whole idea of, of, uh, Valley girls and, uh, meant it as a parody, but it turned into something that became a non-ironic trend. I mean, certainly there was some irony too, but a lot of it was just non-ironic and it certainly, kind of created this whole uh, kind of this cultural zeitgeist of this idea of Valley Girls and Val speak, as it were. It sure did. And uh, I was fascinated uh, by the whole take that they were able to so, I think, uh, successfully uh, paste this Romeo and Juliet story into Hollywood and the Valley. I think it was actually uh, a lot of fun to watch, and I can't wait to talk about it uh, in more detail as we get started. Indeed, indeed. This film was rated R because it contains sex, drinking, and cursing. And I can't wait to talk more about the reasons that the uh, the sex appeared in the film because it's an interesting story. Want to watch this movie and help us out? If you see an Apple or Amazon link to this very movie in our show notes, you can click on it, which will take you to their site, and you can rent or buy the movie. And when you do this, we actually get a little bit in return. It's a great way to support the show just by clicking on that link when you're going to go watch the movie. It's a win-win. I have to admit, I uh, bought a pillow, Andy, and it's a big one, 26 by 26. Mm. With our, Holy cow. Yeah, with our new classic original logo on it. I got mine, the white on blue, but you could, if you wanted, get the blue on, uh, on white. That's fine, because they're all in there, including our Coolidge and Heckerling and Associates Law Firm uh, series t-shirt. We're, we're just really doing a lot in our merch store. Now, you want stickers, you want cups, you want pillows, big pillows. Check them out at truestory.fm slash TNR merch. Don't forget all of our shows are now getting split into their own individual feeds. That's right. The film board, trailer rewind, Saturday matinee. They all have their own feeds. Now just hop into your podcatcher and you can subscribe to each of them in their own individual feeds. And you know, what would really help also is if you can leave a rating or review. I know it's probably just Apple podcasts that does that, but if you use that, if you can leave a rating or review, it does help other people find that show. Just head to truestory.fm slash shows, and you can see the full list. We're going to start featuring audio reviews from you. Email your 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the films. And we might just showcase your voice on the show. Get them in quick, though, because we record a little bit early. So the sooner you get your clip in, the more likely it'll end up in the podcast. Again, email reviews at truestory.fm 
with a 30 second max audio clip attached. And you know, we are Letterboxd fans over here. And now we have a Letterboxd HQ. You can check out our HQ page over on the Letterboxd site. And as fans, we also can offer all of you listeners a discount on your pro or patron membership. You just go to thenextreel.com slash letterbox. It'll take you right to the letterbox page. You can get your 20% off discount right there. And it works for renewals too. Hey, you know what else? We need your support. We don't sell your info. We don't we don't do all that dynamic ad insertion technology that tracks you and your loved ones around the world. I'm not sure that the technology actually does that, but we don't do it anyway. Uh, because we feel like the better way to build a community is to just ask you for your membership support. We have several different membership tiers. If you head over to truestory.fm slash TNR membership, you can learn about them. We have a one-reeler tier, and we have a two-reeler tier. Now, one-reelers get to vote on our weekly Saturday matinee poll and choose the list topic based on the movie we're talking about that week. Uh, If you were a member now, for example, you would have already been able to vote on list topics for Valley Girl that we talk about on Saturday matinee this week. And if you're looking for more, consider joining at the two-reeler tier. Two-reelers get early access to every episode, and they also get so many extra episodes. We are releasing all sorts of new bonus episodes only for members. There's a monthly bonus episode that fills in the gap from one of our series. There's a monthly flick chart re-ranking episode. This season, we're uh, adding in a new members-only episode. At the end of each series, members get a series finale episode that we're calling The Retake, where we talk through what we've learned from the films in each series. Members can also vote on what we're going to be talking about in the member bonus episodes that we release each month. But wait, shut up, Andy. There's more. Members can also watch live streams as we record our shows and can access live streams from previous shows anytime they want. And shh, there's also super secret members-only channels in Discord. Is the rest of this going to be ASMR? I would do that. It's all secret. It's so secret. And stickers to Reeler members. I'm going to mail you stickers uh, from our our merch hall. That's right. (laughs) Stickers for thank yous. It's our merch hall. Yeah. yeah. All you have to do is head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership. You can learn more about our membership tiers. Membership at the two-reeler tier costs $5 a month or $55 a year. You get a discount if you pay for a year of it. Members at the one-reeler tier cost $1 a month or $12 per year. Thanks so much for considering. Sign up today. It was funny. I was reading, I was researching Val speak or Valley speak. This mm-hmm. is what it says. The sound of Valley speak. It's, it's written like it's really scientifically put together. The sound of Valley speak has these main habits. Nasal sound, fast paced run on sentences, breathiness, up talk, or the sound of a question, and vocal fry. Oh, totally. Oh, God. I just did. He's just totally totally totally. That's that's vocal fry. Yeah, it's vocal fry. Vocal fry. Mm, Not crazy about that. Uh, All right. So here's. uh, Let me just get this out of the way. Uh, I I enjoyed my time with this movie. Uh, I felt like the nostalgia piece uh, was uh, again 
uh, smart. I was not offended by the 80s, which is weird because if any movie should offend me about the 80s, these times we grew up, uh, it should be this movie because it lays it on super thick. But I had a uh, fun time. I think a lot of that was because of the, again, exceptional soundtrack to this movie. Martha Coolidge loves music like Amy Heckerling and continues this string of incredible soundtracks. Uh, and Andy, I then went and watched the double feature of the Valley Girl remake and was blown away. I think these movies are make a great double bill. And uh, I, I'm very excited about the whole property. So weird to be as excited about Valley Girl as I am. I couldn't agree more. And what I think speaks to your point is that I think in both cases of Fast Times and this film, they work because they're not trying to be the 80s. I think that they're just doing it because they are the 80s. Like yes. They just bring themselves to the film. And and because of that, it just feels authentic. And certainly, I mean, even in the case of this film where they definitely are kind of bifurcating the di- different like the divisions, right? We really have the Valley, the San Fernando Valley area and all of the pastels and everything that people are wearing. My favorite is that outfit that, 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 that Julie, uh, on the guy that Julie speaks to early in the party, early in the film, what an outfit that is. <laughs> but then there's also the split of what's going on in Hollywood in the downtown LA area, which is much rougher, a little more punk, a little more rock, a little more grungy, but it all feels very authentic eighties. And I think that's why. It feels it, it doesn't feel like, oh, God, it's just so 80s. It just it just is what it is. That's exactly right. I mean, it felt very much at home, um, not like a period piece. And uh, I think that's really uh, that's a really important uh, thing to note about this movie. The mall, again, it was is sort of a central, uh, certainly a central opening figure, uh, opening location in the movie. And I want to I just want to play a little bit of this opening conversation. It's, uh, this is how the film opens. The girls are at the mall. And because of just the narrative of the movie, as we move into the story, I, I think this section really documents the Valley Speak that you're talking about. And I just, I want to set the stage for those who didn't live through it, who don't know it, who didn't see how it expanded around the country. This is it. I don't want to, like, start a family. Like, we gotta get all puffed out to the max and all for sure. Oh, God, Gasly, how could you? Sure. I'd be freaking out. Yeah, look, I'd be scarfing up everything in sight. I'm sure, I don't know, you know, like, oh, I get so fat and all, and what happened to my zits? I get so grody. And besides, it's totally gnarly birth control. I, I found, Andy, I, I'm going back to the mall again. I felt like this this sequence brought me right into it because I felt like the way they handled the audio, the way they handled the the uh, transition uh, around the mall, transitions around the mall, I, it really felt like I was eavesdropping on these girls going through their lives. And I thought that was a great way to welcome me into this universe. Hearing them just kind of having this casual conversation around the table as they're talking about, uh, you know, <laughs> pregnancy is the best form of birth control and, uh, you know, how cute guys are and all this and everything with Tommy. Like, it just, you really get a sense of them as just authentic characters. The other scene that really speaks out to just kind of the way 
that they were, which may speak less to them being Valley girls and more just speak to them being like best friends and, and high school girls hanging out with each other is when they're all, uh, they're at, I don't remember which girl's house, but they're all like lip syncing to a song in the bedroom and dancing around in their underwear. Yeah. And like that to me just felt so wholly authentic of the period of just the way that kids would just hang out and do these sorts of things. Yeah, a- absolutely. It it felt super weirdly, um, it, again, it, being satisfying at the extremes, it felt authentic <laughs> in that weird way as kids. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel like we had a bunch of adults in this movie. Well, we certainly have more adults in this film than we did in our previous film, in Fast Times. Uh, certainly, Julie's parents play a fairly prominent role in the film, which is well, I just mean nice like casting adults as teens. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Well, Nicolas Cage, as we know from Fast Times, he was, you know, underage when he was making that film. He was like 17 and he lied about how old he was. And here he actually is 18 in this particular film. And so he and I I think he was still largely the youngest one on set, but uh, they all were relatively in that that zone of, you know, late teens, early 20s. And so I think largely they do kind of work out fairly well to play these characters. I think Deborah Foreman, Julie was 21. And so that relationship between the two of them felt, and she was a, a young, even a young looking 21. Like she felt yeah. like uh, a very natural casting for the part. Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they worked well. God, I, I feel like um, I, I'm going to really struggle not talking about in, in Valley speak. Uh, <laughs> such good friends. Um <laughs> So this is as much a Romeo and Juliet story as it is a, a, a you know, high school, California Valley Girl high school story. And I, I think they actually did a, a really good job of um, leveling up this conversation around the complexities of relationships and love and, um, uh, you know, uh, status. I, that's that's what I think makes this film for me. I mean, it worked really well. It's just I, I really bought into how, especially at this time in your life, how big these issues are of friendship, of love, and your identity, and how it plays into uh, just everything going on in your world as a teenager. And that, and how interesting it is, that idea of figuring out who you are can be so overshadowed by the peer pressure of your own group, which we see quite a bit here. And I found that to be a really powerful um, journey that uh, Julie goes on here as, as she falls for this guy on the other side of the tracks, as it were. And and has to reconcile with what that means with her group of friends who see that as uh, kind of a breaking of ranks because she's suddenly doing something that, you know, she's not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very challenging for them to deal with that in, in their world. And I, I think that, that there's a lot here about that. There's There's a really interesting conversation that Julie actually has with her dad, and it's something um that I found so interesting the way that the relationship with her parents was portrayed. But when she actually talks to her dad about it, it just, it was so authentic because he's really there and understands and is listening to her and actually has uh, just strong points to make with her. Let's play the clip. What's up? Like I got this problem and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. That's easy. Take it back and get a more expensive one. You know, the expensive ones always fit better, honey. Dad. (laughs) 
Sign it. All right. What is it? Well, like, you know, this is really hard. All right. Shoot. Well, like, I like Randy a lot. You know? Like, he's different. What, he was in an accident or something? Things don't work the way they should? <laughs> no. I saw a movie like that once. Did you? <laughs> All right. How is he different? I don't know. He for sure doesn't dress like my friends or even talk like them. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, is that wrong? My friends think so. Mm-hmm. That's important. Well, sure, I guess. I don't want to lose them. Of course not. And they all want me to be with Tommy. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you want? I want to be with Randy. <laughs> it's getting hard. I don't want any problems. Yeah, well, there's the rub, you see. Nothing's easy. I want to show you something. You see, honey, sometimes the way things look aren't the way they really are or the way they're going to turn out. Here. I don't think you ever saw these. Are these you? Yep, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this? She's a friend of mine. Before I met your mother. Anyway, you see, not everyone looked or dressed like that back then. As a matter of fact, lots of people didn't look like that. Man, I couldn't believe that. I don't think Randy's ever looked this bad. Yeah, well, the point is, what difference does it all make? The way you look, the kinds of clothes you wear on your body. It's what you are that counts, what's inside you, what you stand for. Not what other people want to make you. You see, honey, there are lots of people out there who just ain't happy unless you live and think the same way they do. And if you don't, you dig what I'm saying? I know all about that stuff. But, like, which one do I pick? <laughs> oh, Randy or Tommy. Beats me, love. But let me know when you decide. Okay? Okay. I find that to be a very important message that the film speaks to this whole idea of this and how hard it is to figure that stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, I I do too. And I think this is really this is an important piece to that whole conversation, which is for me while our last movie you know draws a lot of criticism, you know, about the the oogling male gaze stuff, you know, we we talked about that last last week. Yes. And I know you're a big fan of oogling and male gaze so you like all that stuff uh <laughs> at no point did i get the feeling that this movie was written as a sort of you know dirty old man's the high school fever dream um it felt like it was really trying to capture the sense and sensibility of these kids and they felt like kids they felt like authentically confused even at the extreme of their their social performative aspects uh and yet i felt like i i believed it and i think that's a really important difference between this movie and criticisms of the last one even saying that as somebody who who really marginally liked that movie uh, i feel like this movie does that better what's interesting about that is you know wayne crawford and andrew lane wrote this script and it was produced through atlantic releasing which is an independent film production company at the time 
the producers, the executive producers, I should say, um, that because the writers, uh, Wayne and Andrew, were also the producers on the film, but the executive producers had a meeting with Martha Coolidge um, as she was getting, you know, kind of locked in to direct this film. And they told her this because the way that they saw this was basically an exploitation teen sex comedy. That's mm-hmm. what they, the executive producers saw this as. And they told Martha Coolidge that she has to include four sets of breasts in the film. And she said, uh, okay, but as long as, you know, cause at the time she saw herself as an artist and everything. And she said, well, as long as I can shoot them my own way and make it my own thing and tie it into the story in some way. And so they said, that's fine, but you have to do it. And wow. so, so that's why we have it. It's, it's obvious as you go through the film, when you know this, it's like, Oh, there's one, there's two, there's three, there's four. And it's, it's kind of sad that that's the way that they saw it. And even in the scene where, uh, Elizabeth Daly or Lauren and Tommy are kind of getting it on, she kept getting notes like handed to her saying more, more breasts. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of stuffed it in her pocket and shot it the way she wanted. But it was, it was very much that way. And it wasn't until after they saw the film, they realized, Oh, you actually made a real movie. Yeah. <laughs> And they, right. And that's when they're like, oh, well, let's actually put some av- money behind the advertising here and let's actually figure out how we can market this thing because it's not just this sexploitation movie. It's actually a real movie. And to that end, I think the way that Martha Coolidge decided to handle those sex scenes and the, the, the male gaze elements that were forced upon her by putting it into her head and she was able to incorporate it into the story in ways that, I mean, yes, it's still there, but at least it felt like there was perhaps more reason that perhaps more kind of a a little less uh, of the male uh, gaze forced upon the way that they were shot. You know, it doesn't feel as uh, egregious perhaps. Or pervy. Yeah. You know, I mean, even if you're going to look at a movie that is way too often um, looked at as sort of yet another spinoff of Porky's, again, the teen sex comedy film, um, this one, it it does strangely elevate the form. Yeah, I think it does. So Nicolas Cage. Ah, uh, wow. He's, uh, he's a young man. And yes. 18. Uh, what What a strange thing to see him in this movie there are bits of this movie where he is nicholas cage he the nicholas cage we have now is present here and yet i think this movie represents a time in his career before he discovered what makes nicholas cage nicholas cage and really leaned in on it yeah this movie he's kind of a subdued guy which is interesting because he's the rock punk side of things. I know. So. <laughs> I know. But also, you know, he's well, OK, so he's the rock punk side of this, but he also has to be the approachable rock punk side of this because they have to find some way like she's also the standoffish valley girl part of, of this. And yeah. she has to be the approachable standoffish valley girl or the movie doesn't go anywhere. They have to be softer yeah. of, of the extremes that they represent. They're softer. Yes. And uh, and so the two of them generally are much more likable. I think Deborah Foreman is so charismatic and lovable in this movie. Like, you just want her to just light up, you know, every room she goes into, you want her to be happy. Like, just, I want to just find her happiness. And Nicolas Cage is, weirdly, a great 
vessel for that. Yeah, I I, I completely fell in love with Deborah Foreman. <laughs> like I'm like, oh yes, you're perfect, just perfect in this film. It was just great seeing her play this role. And Nicolas Cage, you're right. I mean, he's totally that crazy, quirky, weird Nicolas Cage, but he also is like very charismatic and charming and you can really see the love and the passion in his eyes like he's really doing some great stuff here but yeah then there are those moments where he's chewing on that weird little wax flute that he's playing or when he's making all the funny faces when he's hiding in the bathroom there are all of these bits oh and the you know it's funny how she was trying to figure out how and Martha Coolidge and him were talking about what what can we do when you're running around on the beach uh, on the beach that makes you stand out as a little more punk. And so he shaved his chest hair into in his eyes he was <laughs> shaving it into the Superman <laughs> S shape on his chest. And basically what he has is this weird <laughs> triangle patch <laughs> of chest hair there. Which is very funny, especially when you know that story. And, and well, especially now that we know so much more about Nicolas Cage and his passion for Superman and everything. That is really so. funny. Yeah, the guy, he's just, he's been trying to level it up ever since. But I think this movie makes him, it makes that weirdness is, is muted and approachable in a way that I haven't seen since. Um, I, I really liked. I really liked my experience with him. And I also, I, I want to talk about the other side, that swing, when, you know, when they fall apart, when their relationship is, it falls apart, and you get to see him hurting and yeah. hurt. Um, that is a whole different side of Nicolas Cage, and I think shows um, range at 18 that weirdly is what made him the star, the kind of star that he is today. He and Foreman were having a very difficult time with that breakup scene because this was late in the production. And at this point in the production, they actually had started becoming a thing and had been hooking up. And so it was very hard for them to kind of portray that. And Coolidge had to have some talks with them and talked to Foreman about, you know, imagine it's somebody that you've broken up with in the past and all this. And with Nicolas Cage, she gave him this direction. She said, you're hurt, but not defeated. And it was interesting hearing them in a conversation talking about it like, you know, 20 years later. And Nicolas Cage said that was still one of the best bits of direction he's ever been given. And he uses it still all the time when in his performances. And it was really interesting to hear him say because that it it kind of gave him the that, you know, click in his head that kind of gave him a sense of what to do with that scene and, and how to play it. And you can absolutely see that. I thought that was really interesting way to play that scene and it really works and when he goes and ends up hooking up with samantha back at the club you can you can really sense that so much of that is because of that hurt and i think that it comes through um you know in a strong way yeah yeah absolutely and and uh you know i made the the comment that um and it's just because i hadn't seen this movie um it didn't make the connection for me that I had with like, you know, say anything or some kind of wonderful at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I can totally see how this movie would capture that same, uh, that same spirit for, for somebody out there. Right. Like, because yeah. that scene when they break up and then they have to rebuild and, you know, by the end of the movie, we have to, we have to see them together. I think ultimately um, I felt rewarded, not cheated by, you know, uh, just sort of trying to grease the story. I thought it was really, really, really great. 
their whole relationship, I think, worked. Yeah, especially as as we build toward the end and, and we see him coming, trying to figure out how to get back into her life. And, you know, those scenes are so goofy, but it really kind of play very fun the way that he's kind of disguising himself as ways to kind of like, like, yeah, pop up here and there in her life. And then the whole bit in prom. I mean, I just thought it was really adorable. And I actually really liked the the way that Martha Coolidge was was kind of bringing elements of the graduate into the story here. And, and you know, we first have that in the obvious scene when Sus- uh, Susie's mom is trying to hook up with uh, with um, Susie's with the boy that Susie likes, right? Mm-hmm. Which is uh, an interesting. Or oh, that whole storyline! My yeah. goodness, that competition between the two of them is yeah. awesome. Well, and let me circle back because it's not her mom; it's her stepmom. And I want to come back to that because I have a big question about that that I still don't fully understand. But anyway, Susie and her stepmom and the stepmom is trying to hook up with this guy that Susie likes and brings up the whole thing of plastics, which is a funny little graduate joke. But Mm -hmm. also the whole thing at the end, which was really interesting when we have Julie and Randy. Now they've run away and they're in the limo and you have a very similar shot to the graduate where the two of them are in the limo kind of laughing and everything as as the limo's driving away, much like we have at the end of The Graduate of the two of them in the bus. In the bus, which, yeah. which feels very much like a moment like, oh, we did it, we did it. What do we do now? And that was kind of an interesting element of that scene because it gives you, if you read into it that way, it's like, yes, they're together. They have a one, they, you know, they're going to have a wonderful time together. Are they going to end up together forever? Mm, who knows? But right now they have, they have been brave enough to kind of like stand up to everybody and 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 um, say that they're in love with each other. And that was actually an interesting element that I thought they dealt with in the remake, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. And we should say that remake is going to be talked about on this show. We will do a members oh, yes. bonus on that. Somehow we're going to put our thumb on the scale. It's coming. Members bonus. Yeah. Movies and the remakes. Yeah. 100 percent. 100 percent. Okay, so you want to go back to uh, stepmom and the sexy competition. Susie and her stepmom. Susie and her stepmom. I kept running to call her Stacy. Stacy and Stacy's mom. Yeah, well, Stacy's in here too. Yeah. Stacy's the no. other friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so at the at the party the, the, at the start of the film at Susie's house, where she and her stepmom and I had assumed her dad, but then her stepmom is having a conversation with this guy about how. Susie's, you know, how she's just the stepmom. And ever since her dad died, <laughs> she's been very competitive with her. <laughs> and I was like, wait, okay, wait a minute. So one, that's not the dad. So is it, is it stepmom's new boyfriend? Is it just a friend? I don't know. It's never brought up again. Right. Two, her dad's dead and she's living with her stepmom. Is her mom not around? Like, what's going on here? It was very confusing to me, like, what was happening in this relationship between Susie and her stepmom. It's kind of just left there. It's never dealt with. It's okay. Does it need to be dealt with? Like, you ask yourself, do I need to know how that works? I just, I wonder, like, why why is she living with her stepmom? Especially if the two of them have, like, sexual competitions with... Like, if her stepmom is having sexual competitions with the boys that Susie's interested in. Yeah, which is so weird. But, uh, you know, they kind of have to, I don't know, They obviously they didn't have to do anything, but they they sort of, like, they created, in, in the spirit of world building, of, like, 
the the microculture that is the valley they included this element of the stepmom daughter relationship and then they're they've kind of written themselves into a corner because suddenly we're on the verge of caring more about that story and how it got there and how it resolves <laughs> than we are about our principal story and i think that's we've talked about that before when the b story becomes uh, dangerously close to as compelling as the a story it's just color we don't need we don't need to know uh, all of the outlines just color. yes yes so so uh, uh, music again holy cow martha coolidge and the music Right. Less of the direction that Amy Heckerling was going. That This is definitely more of the new wave uh, vibe that we have going on here. And I just, I love it. And there were some interesting issues that they had with it. And I don't know what it was. There were 20 songs listed in the credits. Apparently, not all of them actually played in the movie. I don't know if they finished the movie and then some of them they ran into issues with and actually had to pull them from the film. But they, they couldn't pay for all the rights. So they didn't end up featuring all the songs listed. Um, which I thought was very strange, but they did feature a lot of songs. And what I really love is that you get some of the Plimsolls and Josie Cotton actually performing in the film with some classics yeah. of theirs, which are just are, are really great to listen to, especially the Plimsolls uh, with, uh, you know, the the great song that they're playing in the club. Well, I guess it's when they first go to the club, right? A million miles away, they play yeah. out there. And then, of course, it's the key song that's playing after uh, Randy is hooked up with Samantha, and of course the song's playing again, and that reminds him of everything. It, it's a great moment. The one that I have to call out is the song "Cool Places." Cool places, Andy. Okay. Sparks and Jane Weedlin. This song, I totally know this song, and we were just talking about this on Saturday matinee because of Edgar Wright's new movie, The Sparks Brothers documentary. I swore up and down. I had no idea who the Sparks Brothers were, but obviously I did. That was a lie. And it further cements how awesome the Sparks Brothers were that they are in this movie that has such an amazing soundtrack. And I feel such great shame that I did not connect those two <laughs> things because obviously we know this. But so the Sparks Brothers, uh, Bonnie Hayes, Banana Rama, Thompson Twins. Oh, Thompson Twins, please. Weirdly, they were my uh, lawn mowing music. On my Sony Walkman, I would listen to the Thompson Twins, uh, Rachel Sweet, uh, The Jam, Culture Club, of course. Come on, Tony Basil, got to have Mickey in there. And uh, Sparks are actually on the soundtrack twice, Eaten by the Monster of Love. Oh, and Girls Like Me, that's the dancing song. That's, that's, a, that's a real earworm when they're dancing around the room in their underwear. You didn't even mention Modern English, Pete. I'm out I did. You. You're right. I didn't even mention Modern English. If there's course. a song that needs to be mentioned, it's uh, that yeah. song. And it's funny because this song had actually just been dropped by K-Rock on, on the radio out there in L.A. And Martha Coolidge heard it on the radio, didn't know what it was, couldn't remember the lyrics, and had to call the radio and her producer and was basically humming it to them so that they could figure out what the song was. <laughs> She's like, I want this. This is the song. Yeah. This is the love song. We have to have the song, but didn't know what it was. And so it was just humming and humming along and something melting. And that's like basically all she had. And luckily they were able to figure it out because that song becomes so iconic in the relationship between these two. It's the love montage song. And then at the end of the movie, and then of course it uh, features quite prominently in the, in the musical remake as well. I need to know how many movies have used modern English, this song, I Melt With You, 
in them because I'm sure it's not just this one, right? It can't be just this one. It was used in this and 51st Dates, um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, covered by the Nouvelle Vogue, and Natalie Imbruglia sings it on her album. It was in the film Sky High and Stranger Things. That's it? It wasn't in any John Hughes? Wasn't, no. And then it was recently in the Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist show. But yeah, it was one really of the songs seems like that a John Hughes thing. I, that's that's exactly what I thought when I heard it. I'm yeah. like, I feel like this was a song that played in a John Hughes film, but apparently not. Apparently, it was this film that is largely Man. where um, people remember it from. Had you seen this movie before? I thought I had. I had a friend who, uh, in college, she swore by this film, and she we would have movie nights and stuff. And I and I know that there was talk of this as a movie night, and I'm thinking that I just must have missed that movie night because I, as I watched this, I'm like, I guess I hadn't seen this film. Totally skipped, skipped it. Probably a lot of what I'm imagining because modern English has a, a Thompson Twins vibe, and so I think I'm thinking about Ferris Bueller. Of course, I Melt with You is not in there, but mm. it, it feels like that that closing bit or Dream Academy, kind of a Dream Academy thing. Yeah, hard to say. Very to say. Vibe. And don't forget that hit song, Andy, Johnny, Are You Queer? I don't know when I first heard it. I, it certainly wasn't in the early 80s. And I think it's because it was a little hard to hear because a lot of radio stations kind of refused to play it. It became one of these these songs that created a lot of controversy because, uh, you know, some conservative groups said it was promoting homosexuality and all this sort of thing. And uh, so I, I think it was probably like late college or or after even that I actually finally heard the song and it's, it just seemed like a quaint thing from the era, but I uh, reading about it, I learned that, that Josie Cotton, who's singing the song actually said that uh, people have contacted her because this song actually helped them come to terms with their own homosexuality, which I thought was uh, very interesting because it certainly doesn't appear that way when you see them performing it in the, in the movie, it seems a little more derogatory. Yes. Well, and I think that's a big problem with the the complaints about the song, because they're not really listening to it. You know, when you when you actually stop and listen to all the lyrics and not just the chorus, the Johnny, are you queer bit? It, it really is about a man and a woman who are seriously questioning their relative roles in their relationship. And yeah. it's a song that tells a story about genuinely wondering if she is with this guy for some other reason because he's clearly not interested in her and you know that's an experience that's a real legitimate experience that people have i could totally see how this could become uh something of an anthem it speaks i think to the times when one of the conservative groups out there um claimed that quote there was no josie cotton and that she was actually a gay man who was trying to convert unsuspecting straight men into Ugh. a homosexual lifestyle, end quote. For crying out <laughs> loud. Oh, yes. Yes, Andy. indeed. This God. was the time, Pete. This was the time. This is what I didn't know, because I remembered it as the Josie Cotton song. I did not know that it was first performed by the Go-Go's. Yeah, I don't think I ever heard that version. I think this is the only version I've ever heard. Right, me too. But I think it speaks so well to the way that Martha Coolidge and as we talked about last week with Amy Heckerling, how they really had these musical backgrounds. And Martha Coolidge had you know been involved. You know she was trying to get a rock and roll movie 
off the ground before this, which fell apart. But before that, she was involved in some like rock and roll uh, documentaries and stuff like that. Like that, she really was tapped into uh, a lot of um, musical work. That was kind of what she had been doing before she uh, started working with Zoetrope and Francis Ford Coppola and that in the 70s. And that kind of you know, kept her going until she kind of hit this point. But I, I think that it just speaks so much to how strongly the two of them were tapped into what was happening music wise in in the world around them and the way that these songs come in they just feel as much a part of their world as anything else any thoughts on how she you know the beyond the nicholas cage line any thoughts on on her uh and the way she structured the film as a director it's interesting because this was a very independent film unlike what we talked about last week with Heckerling's film, this was very low budget. She had a very limited number of days. I think they ended up 22 days and it was supposed to be 20, but they had to do two days because their uh, equipment wasn't working for two of the days. And so, I mean, it was a run and gun shoot and they really had like one, maybe two takes on a few scenes. They were able to get like three or four, but largely it was about two takes. And, and so it was a very, very, very fast project. And so, uh, Coolidge really had to make sure that going into this film that she had things storyboarded, that she had things broken down the way that it was going to be playing out, that, that she already knew ahead of time what was going to be happening and, and really relied on her rehearsals and and her uh, conversations with her actors to make sure that they knew what they were doing. I, I think that uh, largely what she was trying to do, and I think it comes through, is just capture as much authenticity as as she could with the actors and that's something that she said she really she looks for and she that for her that's what that's what makes scenes work is when actors you can tell that there's an authentic sense coming out of them you know i i think that when i watch this that's what that's what i connected to is how authentic all of these characters were for me whether it was the parents or the friends or i mean even tommy he authentically played the the total cad right and, yeah he's and terrible that's, <laughs> that's what i think works is i buy all of these people for who they are i you know just looking at the the rest of the cast i mean everyone went on to do other fun things uh particularly elizabeth daly just sort of blew up 227 225 credits E.G. Daly, she's uh you know peewee's big adventure yeah. is is where i've always had her cemented in my head but you look at her filmography and realize, wow, has that lady really taken on the world of of uh, voice acting in, yes. in animated projects? Because she's all over the place, like Rugrats, Powerpuff Girls, uh, just, I mean, just everywhere. She is everywhere. And I didn't realize that until I was like looking her up and I'm like, wow, okay, she's done everything. But then you also look at all the movies she's been in. I mean, she's just everywhere, which is uh, really fun to see. And it's fun to see her pop up in stuff like the Valley Girl remake. Like, I just yeah. thought that was uh, really fun. But yeah, she's um, definitely been a very, very, very busy girl. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll always think of her as Dottie in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I, uh, I, it's funny to hear her that she took over the voice of Helen Parr in the Incredibles video games. I think mm -hmm. that's the only thing she's done, but those are, that, that's absolutely, <laughs> no, I know that voice. I know that voice. She's yeah, she's everywhere. Elder Scrolls Online too. That's another one we played a lot, uh, and she is all over there. Yeah, yeah. tons 
of video uh, voice work. So yeah. anyway, the rest of the cast is fantastic. Uh, you know, Michael Bowen and uh, Cameron Dye as the friend, uh, the punk friend. Like, they're all, you know, busy people. Michael Bowen um, is somebody that uh, certainly is uh, Quentin Tarantino has tapped into. Yep. Um, he, I think that when he first met, met him, he told him that his character in this film, like, I mean, Tar- Tarantino is a big fan of Valley Girl and, and Michael Bowen's character is one that he really kind of latched onto because he just, he was so much that guy, which I think is absolutely true. And I think for now, or for me, he'll permanently be burned into my head from his part in Kill Bill uh, because yes. his name's Buck. And I think that's all we need to say about him because because <laughs> you get it, you get, you get it. it. Don't worry, you, get it. you got it. Don't worry. But he's also Knight of the Comet, so you know very much in that '80s uh, world. So uh, yeah, but him, Cameron Die, all these guys—they feel very real in this in this space. And it's interesting because casting Nicolas Cage when Martha Coolidge was getting all the headshots and everything. Well, and this, this actually was the very first time that Nicolas Cage went out as Nicolas Cage before in, in fast times. And I think then when he was doing Rumblefish with uh, his uncle, uh, he was still Nicolas Coppola. This was where he first went out as Nicolas Cage. And Martha Coolidge was getting so frustrated by all the pretty boys that she kept seeing to play Randy. And she, she was very irritated and she's just like, we're not finding him. I need somebody who doesn't, is not such a pretty boy who has more edge to him. And she went over to the pile of headshots that they had gone through and it was the reject pile. And she pulled the picture off the top and said, I need someone who looks like this. And that happened to be Nicholas Cage. <laughs> And so they, they, so they, of course, they called him in. She read him and she thought he was great. And she's like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And so she called him back and said, okay, hey, you know, we want you to be in the film. And he's like, well, I, I, I don't know if I can because I'm in this movie right now, Rumblefish. And I don't know if we can, if my schedule will work. And she said, oh, well, you know, that should be fine because I, I work, I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Francis for Coppola. I, I work at Zoetrope and I'm sure we can work something out. And, and so she called up the team and they're just like, well, we don't have a Nicolas Cage on this film. And she's like, all right, something suspicious is going on here. And she's like, well, do you have any Nicholases? And she's, they're like, well, we have a Nicholas Coppola. And that's when it clicked in her head. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> but she told him, she's like, you know, I cast you because of you, not because I knew you were part of the Coppola family. I, I yeah. You were the look I wanted. And that's what he really needed as an actor to say, I actually can do this. I, it's not just going to be my name that's going to be getting me places. It's going to be the fact that I could actually do it. And so it's an interesting moment, I think, in, in kind of his development as an actor. And also for her, just finding the essence of what she needed. Uh, what do you think about Frederick Elms behind the camera? He was a David Lynch guy at this time. And so Valley Girl was kind of in the years between, you know, Blue Velvet and Eraserhead. And he uh, he also snuck in uh, River's Edge uh, that same year as as Blue Velvet. Um, I, I wonder what sort of influence his eye has, do you think, on being able to take this teen sexploitation film and make it a real movie with Martha? Well, and she had known him, I think, from the Zoetrope days. Um, they had kind of been connected from that place. And I think 
that, uh, I mean, he talked to her a little bit, and I think it was very important to her because, like, she didn't know much about the Valley. I think this was kind of a, a key thing that for some of these people involved is like, what is, what does it mean to be a Valley girl? And they had to go over there and actually, like, had to go through and they saw, oh, once you get over there and you see everything looks the same and it's very pastel, there's all these, you know, kind of this certain look and this vibe of the whole thing. They kind of got it. And so they decided, you know what, let's create this look that we, they used certain gels to really enhance all the different colors when they were filming on the valley side of things. You definitely see that like at the parties when things just, you know, it's very kind of bright colors and the way that everything looked. And it was very different from what they were doing over the Hollywood side of things. And I think, I, I think that was a big help in helping create this this separation of the two worlds, which was very important in the film. I think so, too. And I think that really plays, right, those contrasts of using color in that way, I think really helps, you know, uh, it's the lenticular postcard of this thing. Like when you when you're able to to really differentiate when they're in Hollywood uh, versus when you're in in their place, the lights just work perfectly. And uh, um, I think he's I think he's great. Well, and you see that in the Viper Room, too, right? Which was the central. It was called the central at the time they were filming this um, before Johnny Depp bought it. And um, it, I don't know, it just feels like kind of that grungy, real kind of rock punk club. You know, you've got mm-hmm. the people with the the spiked hair and the mohawks and everything. And it just felt a lot uh, grimier. And, and you could see that there was a definite look that they were creating on this side as well that that has that more raw kind of feel to it. I think that um, they did a good job with that. Yeah, I I think um, I think it's it's fantastic. So uh, you talk about how how low budget a movie this is. They were donating clothes to to get the look right, swapping clothes around with the cast and crew. <laughs> right. That's my that's my kind of movie making. They said that they basically had a giant pile of clothes that they had everybody, cast and crew, came donating all the clothes that they would wear. And then they would just kind of sort them out between the cast and figure out what people were wearing because they just had no budget. (laughs) You do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. We we talked about the script and the the nod to the graduates. Um, What's up with Lauren and Tommy? Well, okay. This was a story issue that I had. And I don't know if it was something that that bugged you, but it 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 was brought up in the film. You have this moment after after Julie breaks up with Tommy. Tommy yes. basically hooks up with Lauren in uh in I don't know the, the parents' bedroom at at that very first party. Yeah, and it's it's a moment where you know at the end of it, Lauren feels completely kind of ashamed and embarrassed about the whole thing, especially the way that Tommy treats her. Like he's just you know, Tommy is the the prototypical kind of just like high school dick at this point. He's right? the worst. Yeah, he's the worst. It clearly is an issue for Lauren. Like she's upset about it. She doesn't know how to deal with it, especially when it comes to her relationship with Julie. You get a sense of that from time to time. Like there's a point when the two of them are at the the restaurant and they're chatting and Lauren it clearly wants to bring it up to Julie and how hard it is to say she she doesn't know what to say. And then they get interrupted by friends or whatever. And and she's never really able to kind of clear her uh clear it off her chest. It's just one of these issues that she perpetually has. But it never ends up coming up. I mean, I, I know it kind of becomes the issue for Lauren as to why I guess she 
you know, when everyone else is trying to get her back, get Julie back with Tommy, perhaps that's why Lauren kind of goes along with it. But it's never brought up again. And and I, I kept waiting for that to be something that became an issue at some point, because it seemed like this was a script point that they were making here. Uh, did it ever strike you that it's it's kind of a, a hole that never gets filled? It didn't. But I think I was very much in the space of like, you know, I was an idiot at that age. You know, like it put me in this space of like having to remember that kids, as much as kids do uh, spontaneous things, they also are super resilient and move on very quickly. So I kind of wrote it off as, oh, that was a mistake. And uh, Julie doesn't need to litigate that at all. I, but I, I totally see you. And all I'm saying is it didn't strike me because I was in the mood of the movie. So clearly it didn't take me out to give me time to think about it, which is fair. I mean, that's fair. It didn't it didn't hit me sideways. I, I think that makes sense. I, I can see that. It's just it became it was, it was such a story point. Like it's clearly something that she's going through a few times. It It almost felt to me like there was a deleted scene where there's some resolution to it because it was brought up several prominent points throughout the film beforehand. yeah yeah that makes sense that makes yeah. sense yeah what do you think of this weird little bit of information so you know you've got the the famous movie poster where you've got julie uh standing like very much the valley girl standing next to randy very much kind of the punk with the colored hair with kind of the vest and the tie and no shirt on underneath very kind of classic movie poster it's not actually deborah foreman on the poster <laughs> okay okay <laughs> I totally noticed that. But what I'm looking at, because it's like the po- it's a painted poster. It's not a photograph. Right. And so right. I thought maybe the maybe the artist just didn't get it. Maybe it just didn't get her, didn't capture her. So I written it off. Who is it? It's Samantha. It is the what? actress. Yeah, right. It, it makes no sense that they they did this, but it and I don't know why, but it is um, the girl who plays uh, Samantha, Tina the Burge. She is the one who, for some reason, now she's a brunette, but so they, it's like they did her as the, <laughs> as the character, but then they made her hair blonde, but it's long hair. So that doesn't even match with Julie's short hair. So all in all, it's just like nothing about it really represents Julie. It's such a strange thing. And I don't, and even Randy, like he's got the colored hair and his friend is the one who always has the colored hair. So it's like yeah. it's like a total case. And this certainly was something that I noticed in the 80s where they would they would feature a movie poster that had a lot of elements that weren't necessarily in the movie. And so I think it's easy to write off that way, but yeah, yeah it's yeah. just one of those weird things where the poster just doesn't really represent it properly. That's really funny. I that's uh yeah, I did I don't care for it. I don't care for it. <laughs> And it's it's like she's hype. She's dressed wrong. Like I don't know. The headbands always m- mess me up. I'm not. I don't care for all the headbands. And she's got this weird headband. It makes it look like she's in some sort of exercise video. Right. Like she's going to work out or something. Yeah. 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 It's, leg warmers. She's in leg warmers. And there. he's never in an outfit like that. Like he's never no, just a tie wearing a tie and a vest and, and no shirt. Yeah. Is that punk? Maybe that's punk, and we just don't understand it. I don't know. Very strange. Very strange little, All right. little bit there. Yeah. I, I did want to uh, just follow up. I brought up earlier the whole thing about Valley Girl, the Zappa song. Apparently, Zappa had wanted to make a film because his song was so popular. Uh, and stu- some studios had talked to him about it. Um, and, and then 
he considered it his trademark, this whole Valley Girl thing, and he tried to sue to stop the production of the film. It ended up being unsuccessful because uh, I assume the whole Valley Girl, Valley Speak was something that had existed that he was just commenting on that the film itself was also just commenting on. I, I think it, it was probably not able, he was not able to prove that it was actually his trademark. Um, that would be my guess. But I, I found that to be inter- interesting and that's likely why the song is not in the film. Well, yeah, and I can totally buy that. But my, I think my greater question is just how connected is the song as inspirational material to the film? Because, um, I mean, there's stuff that's, you know, in the song that is part of that speech in the beginning. Like, it just feels like it, they are of a piece that the movie was trying to do some sort of an homage to, to the Moon Unit Zappa song. And so, um, that that I imagine is a complicating factor because it really feels not like it was just like here's a trend we're gonna we're gonna really try to exploit it but this song is funny and we're gonna try and and do a movie based on the character that they've created here right 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 but not tell anybody that that's what it is and that <laughs> that probably pissed him off yeah I can imagine. I hear a lot of movies get made that way that's right. <laughs> All right, we're going to come back with awards. Annie's going to run the gauntlet with the budget. And don't forget ratings and reviews from Letterboxd. But first, we offer some credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ian Locke, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm slash thenextreel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for our show. I'm so sorry. How'd it do at the box office? Well, as I said, uh, Coolidge was working on a very indie budget, like for sure with this movie, spending only (laughs) $350,000 or just under $900,000 in today's money. Super cheap. What's interesting is that Atlantic releasing, when they realized it was a quote, real movie, they had started talking to some studios about distributing it uh, with them, and then they realized they could make more money distributing it themselves, and so they did, and th- they ended up making a-, a nice chunk of change from it. This movie was released April 23rd, 1983, opposite Something Wicked This Way Comes and The Hunger. This one landed in third place. It stayed in the top 10 for four weeks, but it went on to play for a total of 35 weeks, earning $1.8 million, or almost $4.8 million in today's dollars. It is a small profit, but it's a profit all the same, landing it with an adjusted profit per finishment of $39,000. Well, not bad. Not bad, Valley Girl. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. I'm telling you, Andy, this movie was a real treat to find 
again, I guess. Uh, and I think you and I, as, you know, mid-40s white guys, might be weird advocates for this movie, but I think it's safe to say we are. I uh, now should tell my friend from college that I finally watched it and am a big fan because I totally, I like totally clicked with this movie and stuff. Totally. (laughs) It's tripendicular. It's so bitchin'. I can't even believe it. Oh my God. We'll be right back with ratings and reviews. But first, oh, you have to hear Johnny Dangerously. Have you seen it? Send us your thoughts in a 30-second audio clip, and we just might get your review into the episode. Just email reviews at truestory.fm. And for this trailer, we're just going to run the whole thing, because you got to listen to the whole thing. It's We get excited when we hear the whole thing, because it's a great trailer. It's just, just listen. Hey, I know you. You're from Saturday Night Live. You're Joe Pitton. I'm Danny Berman. This chump was going to show you some previews for a new gangster movie called Johnny Dangerously. Check this out. Does this jerk look like a real gangster to you? He looks like Michael Keaton to me. I love Johnny T-shirts. I love Johnny. Believe it or not, everybody loves this guy. Broads love him. I'm not wearing a bra, Johnny. That makes two of us. Oh. You got to watch your head left, Ma. His mother loves him. I love him, but someday I'm going to knock him on his We should spend some time together. The DA loves him. See, two weeks in Puerto Rico. You got fire. Ver. The new torch singer loves him. You got those. I like those on Little babies love him. Oh, wait. The warden loves him. Johnny, it's an honor to have you on Guff Road. Ah, don't be silly. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine. <laughs> Even the Pope loves him. Go yourself a new gym at the Vatican, eh? Well, this is one guy who ain't got no love for this phony. You shouldn't hang me on a hook. My father hung me on a hook once. Once. Well, Johnny's busted Mike Chops for the last time. Gee, he looked like a terrific guy to me. <laughs> Oops. Michael Key, Joe Piscopo, Danny DeVito, Dom DeLuise, Peter Boyle, Griffin Dunn, Richard Dimitri, Ray Walston. See Johnny Dangerously at a selected theater near you. I knew somebody who went to a selected theater once. Once. Title song by Weird Al Yankovic. All right, let's get this put into our Letterboxd HQ. Where did you land with this one on Letterboxd? I think it might, I think I might nudge it up to four. Now you're talking. What do you think? That's where I am. Four stars yeah. and a heart. I, um, I just really was surprised by how much I just connected with this film, with these characters, with this world and just this story. I, I loved the story. I loved their journey. And, you know, I think it gets some nowadays, some, like some people look at it as like, well, it's not really like much of a comedy. And I'm like, well, I think it's, I don't know. I feel like it's just capturing so much of the place. I don't know if it speaks as exactly like an 80s sex comedy. And I think that's kind of Martha coming through in bringing kind of an honest story with these characters through. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I, (laughs) I feel good about it in that that spot. And it also makes me feel even better about nudging up my star rating for the follow on. I, I, this is a, it's a great pair. What fun. Yep. So 
What did you think about Valley Girl? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel on Discord, where we will be talking about Valley Girl this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox, give it, Andy. As Letterbox always do. A lot of vitriol for this movie at the bottom of the barrel. A lot. Mm. And you a went, lot of love at the top. You went high. Thank goodness. I did. I did. Oh, my goodness. I I feel like I need a shower after some of the <laughs> half-star reviews. Uh, I'm going to... Do you mind if we start low and then you can... Start low and high. Give, give us a reason to go on living. Uh, one star from Ryan. Ryan uh, says, this is absolutely miserable. A bizarre, poorly plotted rom-com, which is neither romantic nor comedic. Whatever value Valley Girl holds as a quirky retro 80s teen romp is smothered by the total disinterest of anyone behind or in front of the camera, along with a total lack of care or skill in the actual writing of the film. Nothing happens for any reason. And none of the emotional moments are earned or delivered with any modicum of competence. I assumed this was well-remembered as a charming, charismatic performance by Cage, but but he stumbles through the movie like an absolute creep and acts strange in a strange way, not strange in a fun way. Simply put, sad-faced emoji. Ouch. Okay, so I bring this review up for two reasons. One, because uh, it uses the word competence, which is uh, Steve Sarmento's latest thing. Is the film put together competently? Is it doing what it's trying to do? And is it doing it well? And I think as a film, I think it actually is, especially on this budget, and that it's a nothing happens movie. And we're just talking about all that in in our, uh, Discord. As we record this, this is one of the conversations like, what, what is it when we say nothing happens in this movie? And I feel like more happens in this movie than in Fast Times at Richmond High last week. And that had a pregnancy in it. <laughs> I, I don't know how you could say nothing happens in this movie. I mean, it's, it is Romeo and Juliet. It's a love story. There's love. There's breakups. There's there's trauma and drama. Like, it just makes no sense to me. Makes no sense. All Lots right. of things what do you got. I have a five-star by Brian Sauer from the uh, Pure Cinema podcast. He says, still fantastic. In my top 25, the I Melt With You montage in the film is one of my favorites in all of cinema. Proposed to my wife, who is from the Valley, on an original one-sheet poster for this movie. It is very special to both of us. That is freaking adorable. I want to re-propose to my wife. <laughs> Only if you if you both get dressed up just like the poster, which as I'm we telling you. can point out once again, is nowhere in this film. <laughs> <laughs> also, nor do I have the abs that Nicolas Cage boasts in this movie. <laughs> there will be Photoshop involved. <laughs> so thanks, Letterboxd. 